Hello, and welcome to the Original Jurisdiction Podcast. I'm your host, David Latt, author of a Substack newsletter about law and the legal profession, also named Original Jurisdiction, which you can read and subscribe to by visiting davidlatt.substack.com. You're listening to the 25th episode of this podcast, recorded on Monday, July 31. I post episodes every other Wednesday. A big thanks to this podcast's sponsor, NextFirm. NextFirm helps big law attorneys become founding partners. To learn more about how NextFirm can help you launch your firm, call 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com. Want to know who the guest will be for the next Original Jurisdiction podcast? Follow NextFirm on LinkedIn for a preview. When picking guests for this podcast, I aim for people at the very top of their fields, and my current guest is no exception. I have long been interested in litigation finance, ever since I started covering it years ago at Above the Law. And given its increasing importance, I've known for a long time that it's a field I wanted to cover on the show. So I decided to interview the top executive at the top funder, Christopher Bogart, CEO of Burford Capital, the world's largest litigation finance firm. In our conversation, Chris and I covered his extremely impressive legal career, in which he turned down partnership at Cravath to become the general counsel of a Fortune 50 company, how he and Burford co-founder Jonathan Malo came up with the idea for Burford Capital, Chris's responses to some tough questions from me about the social utility of litigation finance, and recent news events involving litigation funding, including Burford's fight with Cisco, the giant food supplier that was once a Burford client, and Burford's involvement in a case against Argentina that just went to trial in the Southern District of New York that could turn an investment in the millions into a payout in the billions for Burford. Without further ado, here's my interview of Chris Bogart. Chris, thank you so much for joining me. Now it's a pleasure to be here, David. I'm a big fan, as you know. Well, and I've been always fascinated by what you've been doing over the years at Burford, but let's start at the beginning. Tell us a bit about your childhood, your upbringing. I believe you're from Canada originally. I am indeed. I'm Canadian. I grew up in Toronto and had a pretty conventional Canadian childhood. Went to both college and law school in Canada and then came down to New York after a Canadian workshop. Huh. Okay. Interesting. And did you have any lawyers in the family? Were there any inklings or hints that you might become a lawyer eventually? I had a pretty big extended family, a small nuclear family, a pretty, pretty big extended family. And there were a couple of lawyers in the extended families. But I guess I was always sort of interested in law writ large. I was one of those kids that did debate and model UN as, at high school and was active in the Canadian political scene as well. So those are all good markers, I guess, for law. What led you to go to law school? Well, interestingly, after college, I, first of all, was an investment banker. And I thought that was an interesting field to be in, but I also got sort of frustrated with some of its superficiality. When you looked at sort of what lawyers did and what the bankers did, especially if there was a dispute involved, because some of the banking that I did was refactoring style banking. I just thought that I liked the idea of the advocacy and contention more than the pure deal doing. So when you went to law school, were you thinking then that you would go into litigation rather than transactional work, even though you had some exposure to transactions through your banking career? I was pretty firmly on the litigation path. So what led you to come down to New York after law school? Had you done your banking stint in New York? It was a mixture. I started in New York. I spent a year or so in New York, and then I spent some more time in Canada. 
the trip to New York was frankly a full-on accident. I was getting married, coming out of law school. My wife was coming out of business school. And this was still in the era where Canadian investment banks were not all that enthusiastic about hiring women. And so she had this perverse dynamic that she was getting job offers in New York and not really getting job offers in Toronto. And this is, you know, this is a long time ago. This is before the internet. People didn't have quite as clear an idea about how much money people made it's before your above the law concept. And so it was pretty shocking from a Canadian perspective to see how much money people made in New York. And so mm-hmm. we said, well, let's go give that a try for a couple of years. And lawyers in New York at the time, starting lawyers, made about three times as much money as they made in Toronto. And so I thought, what the heck? Let's give it a whirl for a couple of years. What was your first legal job then? After the clerkship? I started as a litigation associate at Cravath. And was it hard to get into Cravath, which is a famously selective firm, especially since you were not coming from the U.S. law school, U.S. clerkship? Well, it was all sort of an accident. The whole process was sort of an accident, starting with my wife deciding to go down there. Originally, I was going to go down and do a doctorate. And I was sort of well along in setting that up. I was going to do a doctorate in conflicts of laws at Columbia. And then I thought, well, let me see, because this was only a couple of months before we were moving down. And I thought, well, let me see what's going on with law firms if I ultimately want to stay there and see if I can practice. And so I sent a few letters to some big law firms. And to my surprise, I got interest in talking to me. And so fairly rapidly, I had some interviews and some offers. And this was 1992. And I think law firms, because of the economic circumstances, we were just coming out of a recession. I think law firms had sort of under And so I think that they were intrigued by the idea of sort of augmenting their ranks with somebody who was effectively immediately available, even though I was way outside the law school recruiting zone. And I think the other thing that is different is that in Canada, there is a less fulsome legal aid dynamic. And so if you are charged with a relatively minor criminal offense, you're not going to get a legal aid lawyer, but you can get a law student. And unlike the American practice where law students who do that work in clinics at law schools are very closely supervised and so on, in Canada, the judges effectively supervise them. And so you can go a lot of trial experience out of law students. So I had dozens of small trials under my belt by the time I came to Cravath. Oh, wow. That's great. And then tell us, after Cravath, I believe you went in-house. What led you to make that jump? So I spent a bunch of years at Cravath. And one of my clients towards the end of my time there was Time Warner. I spent several years representing Time Warner across a number of antitrust and litigation matters. And I became very close to the team there. And the incumbent general counsel of Time Warner, Peter Hage, was retiring. And they, to my great surprise, asked me to replace him. Wow. How many years out of law school were you by then? I went to Tom Warner in 1998, so that would have been seven years. So I was just about to make partner at Cravath, and this offer came along. And it was funny because it's an extraordinary opportunity. I was pretty young, but it was sort of an agonizing decision at the time because I'd just spent all this time getting myself to the point of a Cravath partnership. And then I'm instead of taking that and just doing that for the rest of my life, I was sort of tossing that away and doing something else different. But it was a fantastic offer and a great opportunity. So I I took it. I don't regret it at all. Wow, that's fascinating because I also should give folks some context. Lately, there has been some movement in and out of Cravath. But I think back then, 
Cravath partnership was this holy grail and the partners rarely left and you would die basically and then all the partners would show up at your funeral and do their choreographed walk or whatnot. But I think turning down a Cravath partnership at that stage, I mean, did some people, well, but on the other hand, you're becoming the top lawyer of a, you know, was a publicly traded company at the time, right? Well, that's right. It was a Fortune 50 company. It had a huge legal department on a comparative basis at the time. Legal departments have become much larger today. But at the time, I think it was one of the five or six largest legal departments. So yeah, it was an extraordinary opportunity. And then tell us about your time at Time Warner. So it was terrific. It was drinking from a fire hose. But I always had a combined interest in technology and business. And so it satisfied both of those interests while also giving me an extraordinary level of legal exposure. And then I got to put that into practice because after only three years or so, Time Warner did its merger with AOL and I flipped into a business job. So I moved to become the CEO of Time Warner's advanced technology and broadband business. Oh, interesting. Okay. And how long were you in that business role? Uh, so I did the business role for another two or three years, and then I left Time Warner because the merger, as people who saw that happen will remember, that merger was not one of the world's most successful <laughs> corporate combinations. And Time Warner stock wasn't doing very much of anything. And so I actually left and formed my own technology and media venture capital firm. Oh. Originally with private capital and then later with public capital as well. So you were investing in technology or media companies. You weren't doing anything with litigation or legal finance yet, were you? Well, I was not as my day job. But once I had that business, the way that the whole litigation finance saga started is that a college friend of mine, who by then was a partner at Latham, was frustrated with the Latham business model and its focus on collecting billable hours. And he had international clients who wanted a different kind of fee arrangement. And so I was having dinner with him one night and he was complaining about Latham. And he turned to me and he said, you become this money guy now. Why don't you see if you can fix this for me? And I thought it was sort of an intriguing challenge. I had been interested at Time Warner in changing the way the economics of law work. For example, I did the AOL Time Warner merger on a contingency fee basis which I think remains probably the largest corporate contingency fee in, in history. And so I was interested in the idea. And so as a hobby, Peter Hage and I, my Time Warner predecessor, formed a little fund that just invested in Latham's arbitration cases. And that was pretty much the beginning of what is today litigation fund. But I had no intention at the time of it becoming my day job. I just was doing it on the sides, keeping my finger in law, letting me help a friend, keeping me in touch with Peter Hayes. How were you guys investing in the Latham Ventures? Because I'm guessing Latham wasn't very hip to legal finance at the time. No, basically the way that it worked was very simple. When my friend had a client that wanted a deal other than pay by the hour at Latham rates, He'd introduce me to the client. I'd do a financing deal with the client to give it the capital to pay Latham's fees. Oh, okay. Got it. Very interesting. And were those arrangements typically tied to the success of the litigation in the way that your work is today? Yes, they were. Okay. Okay. So then tell us about how you came to start Burford. Well, so I had this hobby business and lawyers being a chatty bunch, other firms figured out that I was doing this for Latham and they started to call and ask me to do it for them as well. And I 
said, no, I'm busy with my day job. But then we came to 2008 and the financial crisis. And my day job was less fun than it used to be because the equity values of media and tech companies had declined very significantly. And so I wasn't finding things that I really wanted to invest in at that moment. And at the same time, law firms were basically going nuts for capital because their clients were very concerned about liquidity and were trying hard not to pay high billable hour rates. And so basically, I, by that point, met John Malow, who's my partner in founding Burford and serves today as Burford's chief investment officer. And John was sort of doing a similar hobby style business with a little more of an insurance focus. And because we were seeing all this demand, we decided to see if we could raise institutional capital and basically expand the hobby business into a real business. And that was the genesis of Burford then? And that was the genesis of Burford. So in 2009, we went to London in the end, and we raised money by taking Burford public on a London stock exchange. You were able to take Burford public before it really had a track record of successfully picking litigations? More so in London than in the U.S., there's a concept of publicly listing where from investment trusts or investment funds. And so basically, instead of doing a private capital raising of the kind you typically do in the U.S., you do a, effectively a public capital raising to then turn around and invest that cap. And so at the time that you and John Malo started, what was the state of litigation finance? Were there many other firms doing this? No, there really weren't. There were a handful of hobbyists, sort of like us, but nobody had been really successful in raising institutional capital for a broad approach. There were some people who were specializing in IP, for example, because that was an era where IP litigation was pretty pro-plaintive, pretty permissive. But in terms of doing a broad commercial strategy of the kind that we were envisioning, there wasn't anyone who had achieved institutional scale yet. So really, is it fair to say that Burford, in addition to today being the largest player in legal finance, was also the first, one of the first? I knew you had the hobbyists. Yeah, exactly. Like, I think you can certainly call us the first mover in an institutional context. There were people doing class actions in Australia. There were people doing IP litigation. But there wasn't a firm that could go to our traditional client base or the AMLO 100 and say to... Latham or Kravav, you know, we're prepared to take on multiple cases from you across any kind of discipline that you're litigating. And that was the model that we were trying to build. This podcast is being sponsored by NextFirm. If you have wondered whether launching a law firm could be the next best step for your career, NextFirm has the experience and expertise to help. Contact NextFirm at 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com today to learn more. And follow NextFirm on LinkedIn for updates on future original jurisdiction guests. So for my listeners who are not as familiar with it, what is litigation finance? Can you explain it? It's sort of in a nutshell. Yeah, so litigation finance, people use different terms here, and the opening term is often litigation funding or third-party funding. And that really describes the business that I was doing on a hobby basis for Latham. So that's a pretty simple business. You know, a law firm has a client. The client doesn't want to pay by the hour. The law firm wants to be paid by the hour. So a litigation funder steps in, 
And it effectively writes a synthetic contingency fee agreement where the client now isn't paying. Instead, the client has agreed to give up a portion of its recovery. And the law firm is getting paid its hours by the litigation funder who's standing in the middle. So giving each party what it wants, basically, and arbitraging the difference. So that's litigation funding. Now, the thing that is missing in the sort of the current understanding about litigation finance is that the use of capital in litigation has fairly rapidly extended far beyond just litigation funding. And I think a lot of people don't really recognize that. And so there's a lot of, in the discussions that you have with people, a lot of people are still stuck in that sort of what I call the 101 level of litigation finance. Because what's really going on when you step back from this is you're taking a litigation claim and you're treating it as a financeable asset, just like any other asset that we have out there that's capable of being monetized. And litigation funding is a form of that where we're saying, okay, fine, we think there's $100 of value in this case. The legal fees are going to be $10. And so we're able to fashion a transaction that makes sense both for the law firm and for the client by paying that $10 of fees. But what is happening today in the market, in addition to a lot of traditional litigation funding, because certainly people still want just that solution, people have moved on, companies have moved on to thinking about their claims really as financeable assets. And so we're doing a significant volume of transactions where we are applying capital in various ways, either directly in monetization or derivatively against that litigation value, against that future expected cash flow. And that leads to deals where we're putting out vastly more capital than the cost of litigating the cases. So, for example, most of these are confidential, but it's become public fairly recently that in a large series of food antitrust cases in the U.S., Cisco, the Fortune 100 food distributor, had hundreds of millions of dollars of potential value from those litigation claims. And we provided a liquidity-enhancing facility that paid Cisco $140 million today against the future value of those cases. And so companies are not only fixing their unhappiness with paying high hourly legal fees, they're also now using the collateral value of their litigation claims as a way of generating operating capital and financing other parts of their business. Okay, great. So I understand that. And I've certainly heard litigation or legal finance firms talk about how now the parties they fund can use this as working capital. It's not just for the legal costs. Can you give me a couple of examples of varieties of legal finance arrangements that are not just the typical fund the legal costs of a single case? I know there's portfolio stuff. Is there defense stuff? Is there post-judgment stuff? What are some of the flavors out there of legal finance that are not just the conventional fund of this one case? If all of the flavors you just mentioned are active in the market, so portfolio transactions are simply taking pools of claims, pools of cases, instead of just one claim and providing capital across the pool. And the reason to do that is that, of course, litigation comes with a level of idiosyncratic risk in each case. And so the risk of loss of any single piece of litigation, however strong you may think the claim is, you know, there's not an immaterial risk of loss in that case. And therefore, the capital is relatively expensive. If you want to try to bid down the price of the capital, you can do that by, instead of just having one case, 
by having a pool of cross-collateralized cases so that a firm like ours is getting paid our capital back from any success across that pool. That drives down the risk. And because capital in our business and in every capital using business is priced to risk, the fact that you've lowered the risk of loss of principal means that the price is going to come down. So you've got that kind of portfolio transaction going on. People certainly do use this on the defense side as well. But the one difference between claimant side or plaintiff side and defense side litigation and finance is that when you do litigation and finance on the plaintiff side, you're providing a company with a permanent solution to its P&L, to its profit and loss statement. In other words, if you don't use litigation and finance, in my $10 to $100 example before, that $10 is going to flow through your income statement as as an expense. It's going to reduce your profits. And therefore, it's going to reduce your market value somewhat. And if you are, if I take that expense away because I pay it, it never comes back to you. Either you lose the case, in which case I'm out of money, or you win the case, in which case you get a net recovery. And so that's very satisfying from a corporate income perspective. If you do this on the defense side and you win the case, then I, of course, am going to be wanting my capital back. And that is going to flow through your P&L. And so as a result, it is somewhat less appealing because you're getting deferral and you're getting risk management, but you're not getting a permanent P&L solution. But you still see youth that's used often, for example, by private equity firms when they are trying to get a litigation case off a company's books and so on. Okay, that makes sense. And let's now look at critics of the industry because litigation, finance, legal finance are not without their critics. First of all, don't we already have more than enough litigation in this country? Well, the litigation that we're doing is purely large dollar commercial litigation. And so it's really not the case that any of the litigation that we're financing, the question of whether it's being brought or not is not going to depend on whether our capital is provided for it. There's too much an issue in these cases for them not to be brought. The question is how they're going to be brought. So we're providing a more efficient way for companies to bring litigation that they otherwise would and probably would need to bring. The question is, would they have to find some room in their budget? Would they have to, you know, make a choice between an operating priority and paying for the litigation? Or would they have to go to a lawyer that they didn't want to use? Would they have to go to a contingency fee lawyer, for example, instead of their traditional hourly fee relationship? So I don't think there's any water in the arguments that we are driving up the quantity of litigation. People, when they have large dollar cases, they're going to bring them. It's just a question of how they're going to pay for them. What about your driving up, possibly, the length and expense of litigation? Because certainly I can imagine someone saying, okay, let me resolve this case very quickly. Oh, now I have this lifeline or this war chest from a funder. Let me just drag this thing out and extract a higher value from the defendant. Aren't you making litigation more expensive and making it take longer? No, I think we're making litigation outcomes be properly priced, if you will. So litigation between two sophisticated, equally resourced parties is going to find its way to a rational conclusion. And so those parties are either going to settle the litigation at some point during the process that is mutually optimal for them, 
or they're going to fundamentally disagree about the underlying value of litigation. And those are the cases that ultimately go to trial. And nothing that we're doing would change that dynamic. What we are doing is when you have a piece of litigation that does have a bias in it towards a repeat player, what we are doing is probably having that piece of litigation become properly priced for settlement instead of it being underpriced for settlement because the defendant is taking advantage of unequal resources or, and or usually, unequal litigation expertise and sophistication. Oh, interesting. And I also now understand your P&L point in the sense that maybe there's some company that has a very lucrative piece of litigation, but they don't want the legal expenses to flow through their balance sheet, so they settle it on the cheap, even if the asset litigation is actually worth much more. Well, that's right. And corporate legal officers, general counsel and CLOs, tell us all the time that they have litigation that they're not pursuing at the moment because they don't have the internal economic resources to do that. And that's true regardless of corporate resource. Time Warner had a lot of money when I was at general counsel. Money wasn't the issue. The issue was that the CFO never thought that I should get the money. You know, <laughs> he, he always thought that it should go to some movie or TV show. And that's a perfectly logical reaction because that's what investors want. That's what investors are going to pay a multiple for. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Now, another criticism of litigation finance is, well, and this, I guess, is also maybe the origin of some of those older laws against it or limiting it like champerty and maintenance is, well, are you taking away the autonomy of the party you're funding, the right of that party to make decisions in the litigation? And you mentioned the publicly filed dispute between Burford and Cisco. Funders like you typically say, oh, no, 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 the litigation decisions are all in the hands of the parties we fund and in consultation with their law firms. Doesn't the Burford-Cisco situation give the lie to that? How would you respond to critics who seize upon that and say, you guys are running this? Because from what I understand or what I've read, Burford basically vetoed some attempts of Cisco to settle. Yeah, I'll talk about the Cisco case in a second because it's a unique set of facts. That case really does turn on its facts. The general proposition is that we're a passive investor, that we put out capital and it's up to the clients to decide how that capital is deployed and we're simply entitled to our return. It's a little bit like, we're not a bank, obviously, but imagine if we were. It's a similar analogy. And you come to a bank and get a loan to renovate your house. The bank doesn't have any involvement in the decisions that you make about renovating your house. You know, what color you're painting the walls, whether you're putting a nice roof on it or not, whether you're doing a good enough job on the renovation to enhance the resale value or not. That's all up to you. And if you do a good job on the renovation, then you will have enhanced your equity value. And if you do a bad job, you'll have decreased your equity value. And I'm sort of indifferent to that because I'm ultimately going to get my, assuming that the case is successful, and in the real estate analogy, assuming that you sell a house, I'm going to get my money out of it. So if my loan to you is $50,000 and you sell your house for $250,000, I'm still getting my $50,000. If you sell your house only for $150,000 because you did a bad job on the renovation, I'm still getting my $50,000. And so we are passive when clients want us to be passive. 
Now, there are clients who want us to be active, and we're no doubt going to come on in a minute and talk about a case that was on trial last week that we financed. That's a case where we were affirmatively hired to be the managers of litigation as well as the funders of litigation. But companies are certainly free to take our capital and just use it passively, and that's the bulk of our business. Now, the Cisco situation was exactly the same. Our advance to Cisco, even though it was quite large, $140 million, was entirely passive. The problem was that Cisco lost control of its people and assigned away a fair bit of our collateral. As most of your listeners probably know, federal antitrust claims are assignable by the direct purchaser to the indirect purchaser, and it's the only way for indirect purchasers to be able to bring those claims. And so once these claims became apparent that they had value, Cisco's customers started asking for assignments. And Cisco gave those assignments to its customers and thereby significantly reduced our collateral pool. And so the way that we repaired that breach, and Cisco admits that breach, this is common ground between us, the way that we repaired that breach with Cisco was taking a significantly higher portion than we normally would of the remaining collateral pool. But what that did is it left us misaligned. And so to correct that misalignment, we acquired some consent rights that we would not normally have in litigation. And then lo and behold, that misalignment reared its head. Cisco tried to settle the cases for considerably less than we thought they were worth, and we ended up in a dispute with Cisco over that. That dispute's now been resolved, and the way that it was resolved is that Cisco ultimately simply assigned the remaining interest in the cases to us. And so we're now prosecuting those cases as Cisco's assignee. Yes, yes. And I did see that in the news. So everyone who's been following the Burford-Cisco situation should know that it's been settled, it's been resolved, and so everyone is moving forward. So I'll grant you that the Cisco situation is unusual, but isn't it the case that the structure of a funding arrangement, including the capital structure, who gets their money out first, et cetera, isn't that inevitably going to cause funded parties to make different decisions in litigation than they otherwise would have absent the funding? Well, hopefully not. And we've been doing this for 15 years, and we've done it for billions and billions of dollars of cases. Right now, we've got about $7 billion of ongoing cases. We've already had more than $2 billion of cash inclusions. And we've done all of that without any sort of drama other than Cisco about what's going on in the arrangements. You know, I think part of what you're talking about, though, just boils down to basic economics. And this is true even with or without litigation funding. It's important not to bring cases that don't make economic sense to bring. And that's true whether you're paying for them yourself, whether you're using a contingency fee lawyer, or whether you're using our capital. And so if the realistic settlement value of the case is too small to support the cost of prosecuting it, then you shouldn't bring the case. And it's one of the things, it's one of the most common reasons for us to decline to work on a case is because we don't think that there's enough room for everybody to reach a satisfactory result in it. And I think that's also an important part of the rebuttal or response to your critics. Nobody is going to make a profit ginning up meritless litigation. But let me just ask you this. What's the deal with 
the antiquated laws about champerty and maintenance? Have they been repealed? Are they being ignored? Why were they enacted in the first place? Are you structuring the finance arrangements so that you technically get around the laws? What's the deal with those? First of all, you're exactly right about the economic incentives in litigation. And it doesn't make any sense at all for us to finance bad litigation because that's the fastest way for us to lose capital. And that's one place where the analogy to plaintiff's contingency fees really falls apart. Because when plaintiff's lawyers take on cases on contingency, they're effectively betting their own time against what the outcome is going to be. But they are also capable of calibrating that investment of time very carefully. And we are not. We are providing money to big MO100 style law firms who like nothing more than spending a lot of money and building a lot of hours on litigation. And so we aren't able to calibrate time that way. We can't say about a case, well, gee, this one is only sort of middle of the road, so let's only put a little bit of money into it and see what happens. We just don't have that luxury because the client is hiring, let's say, Cravath. Cravath is going to charge them, you know, 10 million bucks regardless. And so we can only take on those cases when they make economic sense. Now, as to Champerty, Champerty is, as the 11th Circuit has said, a, a, a disfavored doctrine that is being increasingly curtailed. So Champerty has its origins in, believe it or not, medieval England, where <laughs> you used to decide disputes by lining up the townspeople in the square against which side of the agricultural dispute they thought should be the winner. And what started to happen is that the squires would start to basically spread some money around to get to the result that they wanted. And so England developed this prohibition against the involvement of money from people who weren't involved in the litigation. And that got incorporated into common law. It's dead now in most common law jurisdictions. In fact, in the U.S., of course, individual states decide what portion of effectively English common law they're going to import. And so a number of states either never had champerty at all. California, for example, doesn't have any champerty doctrine. They've either didn't have it at all, or they've repealed it, like Massachusetts, or they have taken the common law and turned it into a statutory provision, such as in New York. So New York has a statutory provision that exempts transactions above $500,000 from the ambit of Champerty. And so it fundamentally is not a big issue in our business. Okay, interesting, interesting. So before we turn to the speed round, where I ask the same questions of all my guests, let's talk about something that was in the news recently. You alluded to it earlier in our conversation. We are chatting a week after a major trial in the Southern District of New York before Judge Preska involving Burford's investment in litigation against the nation of Argentina, where Burford stands to make a very sizable sum of money, from what I understand. Can you tell us about that case and perhaps use it as a window into litigation finance more generally? Sure. So this is a case that is involving the renationalization, the expropriation of Argentina's national oil company called YPF. So the history here is that Argentina privatized YPF a couple of decades ago and IPO'd it, in fact, on the New York Stock Exchange. 
And even then, Argentina was somewhat of a bad actor in the international capital markets. And the IPO was only possible if Argentina made some very clear promises to public investors that if it later retook control of the company, it would tender for the shares of the public investors. So fast forward 20 years, Argentina, in fact, retook control of YPF and turned around and did not tender for the public share. <laughs> in fact, called the tender after requirement a bear trap that only fools would believe Argentina would abide by. And so, not surprisingly, YPF had a dramatic fall in its equity value. And a number of people were seriously harmed by that, including our clients, who were the, respectively the second and third largest shareholders of YPF. One was a Spanish firm that went bankrupt as a result of this matter. And one was a New York-based hedge fund called Eaton Park, who suffered heavy losses. The Spanish company is the one that really started the journey with us. And we were ultimately appointed by the Spanish bankruptcy court to take this litigation forward in New York for the benefit of the creditors of Peterson, who are a syndicate of well-known international banks. And so we have been fighting this litigation now for eight years. It has already gone once to the Supreme Court on the question of sovereign immunity. We've been successful along the way in getting Argentina to be capable of being sued in New York over this commercial activity and on their stock exchange. And so the trial that you're referring to came after we won summary judgment on liability. And so this trial was basically about the question of damages. It is a large dollar claim because YPF is a valuable company. And so Argentina conceded that trial, actually, a minimum damages figure of $4.9 billion. Wow. And so the task for Judge Prescott is to decide whether and how much more than $4.9 billion ultimately should be awarded to these plaintiffs. And so Burford has been, as I noted earlier, not only financing this long-running and expensive litigation, that really has sort of a dream team of lawyers attached to it, really on both sides, but also has been involved in managing the litigation as requested by the Spanish bankruptcy court. And tell us, on the other side of the $4.9 billion, what is your position or what's your client's position as to how much this litigation is maximally worth? The bylaws of YPF actually set out a formula for calculating the tender offer price. And so the damages trial is actually quite technical in debating a few elements of the application of the formula, namely the relevant date on which it should be applied, the way that price earnings ratio should be calculated for it, and the amount of prejudgment interest to be awarded since this is now 11 years since the renationalization. So the range effectively is 4.9 to something well over $10 billion. Wow. And I believe this is public so you can reveal it. What was Burford's original investment in this case? And what is Burford's share of the anticipated recovery? So Burford, Burford's investment comes in a number of ways here. We started off by making a payment into the Spanish bankruptcy court. That's back to the concept of monetizing claims. So we made a payment of about 15 million euros to permit the Spanish insolvency to continue to function. We then made further payments to even parts, limited partners who were in liquidation by then. 
and we've uh, obviously had significant expenses associated with the case. So Burford's investment today is well over $50 million in a high risk case and will end up receiving something that looks like a traditional contingency fee from that. So call it about a third from the Peterson recovery. Now, that being said, you know, the numbers that I was just tossing around were numbers for a trial court judgment. The saga is not over by any means. And there's obviously an open question about how much Argentina will ultimately pay of a judgment. So we're really just toward the end of Act One right now. So turning to my final four questions, my first question is, what do you like the least about the law? And this can either be the practice of law or law as a more abstract system of governance. Well, I'm a big fan of the rule of law, but I suppose I see so much litigation around the world in so many different contexts that what I probably disliked is the level of inefficiency that is often present in the administration of justice and the degree of unpredictability about that process, not so much substantively, but it can make a big difference if you've got an efficient, on-the-ball, fast-moving judge or arbitrator compared to a slow, not very engaged judge or arbitrator. That can have a huge difference in the ultimate outcome in matters just in terms of how long they take and how much they cost to get done. So that's probably my largest complaint about law. But that being said, it's sort of like the Churchill quote about democracy. You know, there are all sorts of criticisms of law, but it's better than anything else we, we've come up with. And I certainly subscribe to that as well. Okay, fair enough. And it is interesting, I think, in some ways, what entities like Burford are doing is they are making the process perhaps more efficient and more predictable and more rational. So I think that is also, I guess, a point in your favor against your critics. My second question is, what would you be if you were not a lawyer or, in your case, a litigation financier? Well, I think I would be sitting today as a technology media venture capital investor, which is still a, an area that I find absolutely fascinating, with particular emphasis today on the incredible advances that we're seeing in the medical field. I did some amount of sort of biomedical and medical technology investing before I founded Burford. I find that a really interesting area, and I think I would still be doing that. Interesting. Okay, okay. My third question is, how much sleep do you get each night? Well, that depends. During a Peterson trial, not very much. But uh, <laughs> on a normal day, I try to get between six and seven hours of sleep. Okay, that's reasonable. And finally, do you have any parting words of wisdom, such as career advice or life advice for my listeners? Well, only that I think that law for a long time was a very insular profession. I think there was one single business model where people started at a law firm, they counted up their hours, they billed those hours at the end of the month, that was sort of it, and on the conveyor belt went. And I think today there's really the opportunity to have multiple business models operating in the legal profession. And I think that lawyers pay attention to business, attention to economics, attention to finance. I think those kinds of investments of time will be well rewarded in the couple of decades ahead of us. I think that's a great note to end on. In some ways, utilizing or working with firms like Burford is one way that law firms can try and experiment with their models. But your model seems to be working very well. So congratulations again on the success of Burford. And thanks for joining me, Chris. 
Well, thank you for your time, David. It was nice to chat with you. Thanks so much to Chris Bogart for joining me. As a so-called recovering lawyer myself, I always enjoy speaking to folks like Chris who have taken their legal education and training in a different direction and encountered spectacular success in their new fields. Thanks to NextFirm for sponsoring this episode of the Original Jurisdiction Podcast. NextFirm has helped many attorneys to leave big law and launch firms of their own. If you would like to explore this opportunity, contact NextFirm at 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com to learn more. Thanks to Tommy Harron, my sound engineer here at Original Jurisdiction, and thanks to you, my listeners and readers, for tuning in. If you'd like to connect with me, you can email me at davidlatt at substack.com, and you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at David Latt, and on Instagram at David Benjamin Latt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. Please subscribe to the Original Jurisdiction newsletter if you don't already, over at davidlatt.substack.com. This podcast is free, as is most of the newsletter content, but it is made possible by paid subscriptions to the newsletter. The next episode of the podcast should appear two weeks from now, on or about Wednesday, August 23. Until then, may your thinking be original and your jurisdiction free of defects.